As we begin, I want to share a story of a Minnesota couple who decided to go to Florida to thaw out during a particularly icy, cold winter. And so they planned to stay at the hotel that they had stayed in uh, where they spent their honeymoon 20 years earlier. Um, however, it was kind of a last-minute uh, 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 trip to make, and so they had hectic schedules. And so uh, the husband actually flew down to Minnesota on a Friday, and then his wife was going to f- uh, join him the next day. So uh, when the husband gets there, he checks into the hotel. He notices that there is a computer in his room, and so he decided to send an email to his wife. However, he accidentally left out one letter of her email address and sent the email without realizing his error. Meanwhile, uh, somewhere in Houston, a widow had just returned home from her husband's funeral. He was a Baptist minister who was called home to glory following a rather sudden heart attack. Uh, The widow had decided to check her email, expecting to try to work through a bunch of condolence emails and messages from family and friends. However, after reading her very first email, she screamed and fainted and fell to the floor. Her son, who was in the other room, rushed to see what was going on. He looks at the computer screen and he reads the opened email that had the subject line to my loving wife. And the email read this, I've just arrived today. I know you're surprised to hear from me. They have computers here now and you are allowed to send emails to your loved ones. Since I've just arrived, I thought I'd send you an email. Everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. (laughs) Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is hot down here. (laughs) Now now today, as we uh, continue our time in the book of Genesis... Here's the question we're looking at this morning, okay? Here's our question. What does God's judgment teach us about God? What does his judgment teach us about God? The email story we just read is kind of funny. We think a Baptist minister, he loves the Lord. He's probably not in the really hot place. That's probably what you think when you read the story until you're surprised, or at least his wife was, to get the email that, of course, wasn't addressed to her. Now, we have been in Genesis for a while, and one of the themes that we have seen is that God's judgment, God, or rather, God judges because he loves and because he cares. If God did not care, he would not care how you treated other people, how other people treated you. Uh, today, in this story of Genesis, we're going to look at another aspect of God's judgment and what it shows us about who he is and how he interacts with us broken, fallen, sinful human beings. And so if you um, have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you, page 14 on there. And if you do not own a Bible, we encourage you to take uh, that one home. It is our gift to you. We are uh, picking up the story or continuing the story of Abraham, who uh, God had called, not because he deserved it, but out of his grace, to say, I'm going to make and bless you into a mighty nation from which somehow, some way, all of the world will eventually be blessed because of you. Now, now last week, we, we saw the story again that, that, that Abram was told he's going to have a son, and not only is he going to have another son, but it's going to be through his wife, Sarah, who up until this point has been unable to have kids. Uh, it would be a, a rather miraculous event. event. They're both old. She is past the age of childbearing, but God says, you're going to have a son. And so they said, about this time next year, and you're going to name him Isaac. And then we ended chapter 18. This is the chapter 19 is the, the second, the continues the story of chapter 18, where God and his angels are going to travel to the city of Sodom to judge and destroy it because it is massively wicked and evil. 
And so uh, Abraham kind of goes back and forth with God and says, well, what if there's a right, 40 righteous or 30 righteous or 20 righteous or 10 righteous? And God says, fine, I won't judge the city. And then Abraham stops asking at 10. And of course, today we're going to see his angels go to Sodom and pronounce judgment on the city where also Lot, uh, Lot which is Abraham's nephew, lives. And so uh, Abraham's concerned about what's going on here. And so we're going to pick up the story, Genesis chapter 19, verse 1. I do I just want to say this, if you're unfamiliar with the story. Uh, we are reading a, a difficult to hear story that includes sexual violence. Okay, so we're going to he hear a story that is uncomfortable for us to hear. And so I just want to say that to you as well as an uncomfortable story as we see how God deals with judgment and evil. And so it says this in chapter 19, verse 1, the two angels entered Sodom. So again, they, after they had visited Abraham, they traveled to the city of Sodom. In the evening, as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway, Lot is Abraham's nephew. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house, wash your feet and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he, being Lot, urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them as they ate. Now, I do just want to point out here, it is, it is hard for us as modern readers to really fully under, understand and appreciate the need and value of hospitality in the ancient world, right? There's no Motel 6. Uh, there's no fast food restaurants. I mean, you're out in the open. It was a dangerous thing to travel. And even more so, at night, you relied on the hospitality hospitality of others and other cities and towns and tribes to care for you and to take you in as you are going, uh, particularly at night from wild animals or thieves. And so what would often happen, it was common for travelers to sleep at the gate of a city or at the entrance of a city. Uh, so at night, at least they were uh, kept from the outside elements. And people, were, this is kind of a common practice. People knew that guests slept at the entrance of the city. And if people were extra generous or hospitable, they would invite some of these guests instead of sitting out in the, in the city gate courtyard area to come and stay at their home. And so this is what Lot does very generously. Now, what Lot is doing here is the same thing that Abraham did to these angels when he saw them in chapter 18. He also welcomes them into his home. A Lot here is generous. He is acting righteously. Uh, again, Lot probably, at least at this point, thinks that these men are certainly normal men. I don't think he understands that they're kind of divine beings. Now, perhaps they looked a certain way, and so Lot thought, maybe I should or invite them into my house as opposed to any other guests. But for whatever reason, he invites them in. Now, it's also important for us to know, we can miss in our context, when it says that Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city, uh, this implies authority in the community. So many times the elders and leaders of a town in a city would sit at the gateway or at the entrance to a town, and that's where they would do, they would judge cases, they would mediate disputes. And so having someone sitting at the entrance of the city, at the gateway of the city, implies that he is a leader of the community, which means he has now ingratiated himself in the community. Originally, he just chose to settle him and his family and all of his animals in the city around the city of Sodom. Now he is clearly living inside the city and is a leader in the city. Now, this should raise red flags to us. We've been told in chapter 13 that Lot is, or sorry, Lot, that, that Sodom is an evil and wicked city, and Lot, for whatever reason, feels comfortable enough not only to stay living there, but now become a leader. Uh, he no doubt 
absolutely no doubt knows what can happen to people in Sodom or to guests when they sleep at the entrance of the city. What we're going to read today is not a one-off event. This was clearly a typical normal practice of the people in Sodom. In fact, uh, this is hinted at when he says, you can come and stay at my house and then you can arise early in the morning, perhaps without being seen from other people, so that people don't realize that there are outsiders staying in my home. And so he convinces them to stay with him. And it says this in verse four, uh, before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. This is Lot's house. They called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went out to meet them at the entrance and shut the door behind them. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. So again, what is happening here is evil and wicked. Some things to, to point out, it says both young and old. This is a mirrorism that means that this was a normal practice that a lot of people in the community, when they found out there was a new person or a guest, they would go after these people. And it's also helpful to remember young in the ancient world, a young man was the age of 13 years old. So you have uh, people around 13 to, to elderly men in the community that participated in these events. This was clearly a normal practice for these people. Again, just remember that Sodom is inhabited by Canaanites. And we talked about this with Noah and, his, and the Canaan and the curse of Canaan and Ham, that the Canaanites are often perpetuating or acting just like Ham did, if you were here for the, sto the story of Ham and Noah's wife. What they're doing is evil. We know they also practice things like child sacrifice. I mean, it is an evil place. And again, this thing was common to them. When, when, I, when I say evil too, again, this is not like cheer for the rival sports team evil, like I don't like that team and you like that team. Like that's a difference of opinion or maybe where you uh, grew up and who you like. What is actually happening here is horrific. It is a horrific evil that God judges. In fact, as I've said throughout Genesis, I think that if we could see how evil these people were in their practices, we would not be upset that God decided to judge the people living in the promised land. What we would be upset with was that he waited so long. That this is a common practice to rape and sexually violate guests that come into your town. And it happened probably on a nightly, if not a weekly basis in the city of Sodom. That people want to sexually violate, they want to bring violence on these men as they do to others. And so when we read this story, here's the question for us to ponder, right? Is it wrong to judge? Right? Is it wrong to judge? And in our culture today, the answer to that question is Yes. You cannot judge. You cannot tell anybody what they should or should not do. The problem is when you read stories like this and you say judging is wrong, you're then in a conundrum because what do you do? Especially in a culture today, we live in the United States of America. It's a relatively safe nation compared to other parts of the world. We do not have other nations that come and like rule us or come and send their military to the United States. Like the United States sends their military to other people. Like we don't know what it's like to be under the rule of foreign governments as we live here. Here. And so it's easy for us to say, you do do, I do me, everything's not that really bad at the end until you come to something like this, right? If you assume judgment is wrong, then you have a problem with this story because you cannot say what these people are doing is wrong. In fact, this reminds me, a couple weeks ago, one of my kids made the comment at dinner, uh, they said something funny, then they immediately said, don't judge me, right? Immediately said it. And then they said it again the next day, we we're talking about something, something silly came up and they said, don't judge me. And so at which point, I, we had, I had a conversation with my child, and I said, um, 
in our house, we are actually not going to say, don't judge me. And I said, typically what, what happens when you're hearing this from, from my, uh, another kid or a friend is typically in our culture today, people say, don't judge me because they want to do something and they don't want anyone else to tell them whether it's right or wrong, that we can do whatever we want and no one else can tell us what to do. And so we're having this conversation. I said, actually, judgment is not a bad thing or it's not a good thing. It is a neutral thing. It is how and why you judge that can make it a good or bad thing. I said, so for example, if you're playing on the playground and you see a kid being mean to someone else, you are making a judgment that that is not right. That how that child, that kid is being treated is not right. That is a good thing. Now, you don't want to be mean and angry and all these sort of things, but, but judgment is actually can be a good thing. In fact, I said, uh, as you get older, when you have friends that love Jesus, you should let them judge your life. You should have people that speak into you and see things. Hey, this is, I see you, you did this thing, or I see you behave in a certain way. I don't, I don't think this is right. I don't think it's best for you. Of course, we can judge wrongly, but we can also judge rightly. I think our modern culture today, if they saw this, they would say, yes, it is correct to say, to make the judgment that what these people inside them are doing are, is not good. It's not good. This is evil. Is it wrong to judge wicked evil? That's the question when you read this story. Is God supposed to say, it doesn't matter. Let these people do what they want. And so again, I would say so far in this story, uh, it's good on Lot that he is hospitable, that he is trying to defend these men from a sexually deviant mob of people, um, although it is questionable that he's now a leader and he's at least comfortable living in a place where this happens, but at least he's standing up for these guys. But then this happens. It goes from bad to worse. Verse 8, look, this is Lot speaking, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they said, adding, this one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. In other words, Lot wasn't from there, but now he's risen to a level of prominence. Then they say, now we'll do more harm to you than to them. They put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door. And so this goes from bad to worse. Again, since Lot has become a part of Sodom, he has become, part of, become a part of these wicked tribe of people. He might not uh, participate in these sorts of acts, uh, but he's now in a situation where because he's lived in there, he's gone. There, there are only bad and sinful options here. Right? There is no good options that is presented from these people. Um, he wants to protect his home and his guests. And again, not at all excusing what Lot is doing here. I do think it's hard for us to appreciate. There is kind of this, this understanding in the ancient world that if you took someone into your house, that you were going to protect them. It was a big deal. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, if you're the airport, if you're the library, you're somewhere public, and so there's like a stranger next to you, and they say, can you wash my bag as I go to the bathroom? And you're like, bro, I'll do anything for that bag, right? You're like, you, you look at that bag wrong, you'll, you'll scare someone away, right? And that's what's happening here. It's, like, it's a big deal to welcome someone you're into your house. However, Lot's response to protect these men is to do something that literally makes our skin crawl, that he offers his daughters. Now, they are betrothed or they're engaged to other men to be married, but they haven't been married yet. The marriage has not been consummated. And so he offers his daughters to, the, uh, to these mob of people to protect these men. And I think we are right to ask, who would trade their own daughters to protect strangers, no matter how important it was in the ancient world to protect people that come into your house. Who would do that? 
right? Now, I do think it's worth pointing out, uh, some biblical scholars, they're not necessarily arguing, but have said what could be happening here is that Lot is saying, basically saying, I would as soon have you violate uh, members of my own family as violate those who who I've taken in and offered hospitality. And so maybe the assumption here is that they wouldn't do this to his own daughters, who's a leader in the community, like they wouldn't take his daughters. And so if they wouldn't do it to his daughters, they also should not do it to his uh, to his guests. I don't know if that's actually what's going on here. I do think it's worth mentioning. Some people have said that, but it does seem to be that Lot is actually willing, like actually willing to make this trade, right? Which means, although it wasn't his idea for these men to come to his house, he would also be uh, complicit in this evil act of violence if he were to actually trade his daughters, to give up his daughters, to be violated in such a horrific and violent manner, right? This is bad, and then the locals become even more angry with Lot that he would try to stop what they are doing. And that, that he who did not grow up in the area, now he's wealthy and rich, and so that's probably part of the reason why he grew in prominence in Lot or in Sodom. But he's not even from there, and yet he should act as a judge over these people. And so that now they say, not only are we come for our guests, we're coming for you. And in the midst of this wicked and, I think, evil story for us to read, I do think as we kind of think of how can we understand and apply this text or how should we think about this text in our lives today, I do think perhaps we should see how much Lot has absorbed of his culture to even think or suggest that his daughters were an option instead of these men. That he is so used to being around this, that instead of seeing it as wicked and evil, he just sees it as a thing to survive. Uh, I think for us, we could ask ourselves this question, where have we acclimated to our culture? Where have we said, I'm not, that, that's not a big deal that our culture does that, if you're, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, that you kind of dismiss it or you excuse it because you're so used to it, right? Lot has acclimated to his culture. He didn't participate in things like this, but he clearly didn't think it was, much, it was a big enough deal for him to leave or to try to stop it, right? Lot, in other words, doesn't really seem to care about this practice of the Sodomites until it affects him. He doesn't seem to care until it affects him. And for us who are followers of Jesus, I think we should think critically about the things that we are a part of, the things that, that we do, the, the media we consume, the, the, th- the ways we spend our time, maybe how much time we spend on our phones and our devices or whatever it might be. I'm not going to he- 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 uh, be here today and tell you who you should not, should not watch and here's what you should and should not do. I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say we should ask ourselves, where have we absorbed our culture? It is so hard to do this. Um, we know if you look at any stretch of history, it's easy to be like, I can't believe even Christians acted this way at this certain point in time or believed this at this certain time or, or did this and how come they didn't speak against their culture? There are no doubts, blind spots that we might have in our lives today. And I think we are invited to reflect, maybe not as horrific and awful as this story, but where in our lives? Are we like, eh, it's not a big deal or eh, I'll do it if I did. In fact, I even think maybe even our, some of our spiritual practices and disciplines, right? In our culture today, we're very uh, hyper-individualistic, you know, do what you want when it's convenient and when you like it. And I think even sometimes as we try to follow Jesus, we can do the same thing with our own spiritual practices, right? I'll go to church if I'm, if I'm not busy, not sick, and not tired. Or I'll spend time praying if I actually have a need, but otherwise I'm kind of good on my own, right? Do we even allow our culture to impact our own relationship with Jesus? Do we make it a priority or do we view our relationship with Jesus like everything else that we can kind of compartmentalize when it feels easy or convenient for us to do? Where have we acclimated to our culture? 
because Lot clearly has here. And then the story continues, verse 10. But the angels, the, the men who are in the house, they reached out, brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Verse 11, they struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so that they were unable to find the entrance. Then the angels said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Thought he was joking. So what's happening again? The angels, they strike these people with blindness. It's mostly some sort of, most likely some sort of temporary blindness. So they can't do what they want to do. Uh, they don't know what's going on. After which, at some point in time during the night, Lot goes out to find his sons-in-law or his, uh, the, the men who have been promised to be married to his daughters. In the ancient world, you could call someone your son-in-law or daughter-in-law, even if you weren't married yet, if you had kind of set up the, the promise or the proposal that it was going to happen. And so he goes, gets his sons-in-law, tells them that they need to leave. And I think understandably, understandably, I think Lot's sons-in-law, they don't believe him, right? This kind of old cranky guy, he's probably freaking out. He's probably explaining what's going on. He says the city, probably at least in their mind, is going to be randomly destroyed tomorrow. Like for these guys who live in this town, these practices of what's happening in Lot's white house happen all the time. And so they're like, what do you mean it's going to be destroyed? This is like not anything new. And so they don't go with him. They don't believe him that this is actually going to happen. And so it says this in verse 15, at daybreak, so very early in the morning as the sun begins to rise, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters where, uh, who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. In other words, he didn't want to go. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. Uh, they brought him out and left him outside the city. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, run for your lives. Don't look back and do not stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. In other words, in the morning, it's time to go. Even after everything that has transpired, that Lot seems to hesitate. In fact, the text seems to say that if the angels hadn't forcibly got him out of his house, he would have stayed. He wouldn't have actually left. Now, why? We don't know. I mean, obviously, he probably thinks what's happening is evil, but all he knows is this place, his friendships with this place. Like, where is he going to go to start all over all by himself? It's a scary proposition to kind of leave and start over in some other place. He doesn't know where he's going to go. But God, in his compassion... He rescues him. He takes them out of the city and he tells them to leave because if they don't, they will also be destroyed with the city and the surrounding towns. But Lot still, uh, still kind of argues with him. Verse 18, it then says this, but Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor with you and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life. But I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, this town is close enough to me to flee to. It is a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to him, so the angel said to Lot, all right, I'll grant you your request about this matter too. It will not demolish the town that you mentioned. 
Hurry up, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zoar. So again, a lot here he pleads that he and his family, instead of going to the mountains, that they can go to a nearby town instead. Now it's debated if the town was actually closer than the mountains, or perhaps it was easier to travel to than trying to go over a mountainous, hilly region. Um, we don't know, is it because he wants to still stay in the area? He wants to live in an area that he's comfortable in, where he knows the culture. Um, even though it's wicked too, he's like, well, it's a smaller town, so it's not as bad, so can I go to that town and you just spare that town? Um, we, we don't know for sure why he doesn't want to go to the mountains. Instead, he wants to go to this town, uh, but he does, and God grants his request. He lets him go there, and then it says this, verse 23, he says, the sun had risen over the land when Lot had reached Zoar. So it's probably midday, if not later. It's been a, a, at least a few hours, if not three, six hours into the day. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, so the city and its surrounding villages, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. It is destroyed. Now, uh, scientifically here, if you're interested, you know, how could this happen? What, what likely could possibly potentially be happening here is a very, very big violent earthquake. And when these things happen, heat, gases, and sulfur, and bitumen actually come up from the ground. You can actually have lightning. I actually was reading an article on this. It had nothing to do with this. It's just like, you know, Google, you know, your phone know everything about you. And so I, this week, I was actually reading a lot, an article about in, in certain earthquakes, lightning can come from the ground. Like it, come, it literally can come out of the ground somehow. I don't really understand how it works. Uh, or there are at least emit electrical charges that look like lightning. Uh, perhaps it was violently storming as well. For whatever we know, this combination would produce fire. Fire and total chaos. It is destruction on the magnitude that Lot probably has never seen in his life. Death. Now, I also want to say real quickly to point out another misconception about Lot's wife. Again, people read these stories and be like, see, this is dumb. Like she literally just like turned her head and became a piece of salt. I always want to say this. If you ever read anything, particularly in the stories of the Old Testament, that sounds strange to you, there's probably more going on there. And that's certainly what's happening here. I, at least I would submit to you what did not happen as they're, you know, at least a couple hours out of the city that, that that's, uh, Lot's wife is the only one who turned and looked and she became a piece of salt. I don't think that happened. In fact, I think it would be impossible not to look at what was happening. What I think very clearly is happening here is that she didn't simply turn around and look, but that she went back. That's probably what's happening. In fact, in verse 17, it literally says, run for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere on the plain, run to the mountains. And then it says that she looked back. What's happening here is I think she went back sometime before the destruction began. Again, and remember also repeatedly in Genesis, looking often involves action. You see something that seems good to you, and so you go and do it. She, again, understandably is like, where are we going? How are we going to survive in some new place? This place has never been destroyed before. I doubt it's going to be destroyed now. She does not believe it's going to happen. And she goes back, and she takes part in, or she's there when the destruction happens. But Lot and his two daughters survive. And then it says this, verse 27, early in the morning, the next day, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. This is where he talked with the Lord before the angels left them to go uh, judge Sodom. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain. And he saw that smoke was coming up from the land like smoke of a furnace. 
So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. In other words, what this is telling us is that at the end of the day, Lot is saved by grace and because of Abraham. In fact, I don't know if it's a stretch. It might not even be a stretch to say that God saved Lot because Abraham asked, right? In chapter 18, would you really destroy the righteous with the wicked, right? It could be implied by his back and forth with God in chapter 18. Twice now, however, or regardless, we have now seen that Lot has been saved, not because Lot deserved it, but because of his proximity to Abraham or because of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham literally goes after Lot when he was captured by a rival king, and now he spares Lot's wife or wife, life, so, so, so words are so similar. Not his wife, but Lot's, Lot's life. He spares Lot because of Abraham. That God, what we see here is like what God promised him. That God blesses Abraham and those near Abraham even when they don't deserve it. Even when they don't deserve it. Lot, in fact, is obviously normally okay with what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he wasn't even going to leave. He wasn't even going to leave, yet he was saved. And I think for us, just for a second, particularly if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, when we think of how Lot has rescued Abraham not once but twice, I think it might be helpful for us to think of, think of us or ask ourselves this question, uh, who are we pleading for? Right? Who in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, are you pleading and asking and begging that God might rescue them, that God might show them grace and forgiveness and mercy, just like he has shown you? Right? God saved Lot, not because Lot deserved it, but because Abraham asked. What does this mean for us? Right? Who in our lives are we interceding for? That, that they might receive the unwarranted grace and mercy of Jesus. Not because they deserve it, but because God is loving and kind to them. That they might receive God's grace instead of righteous and accurate judgment. If you're a follower of Christ here this morning, who in your life is not yet a follower of Jesus, does not yet know the mercy of God that we are pleading for, that we are interceding for. Lot is only saved because of Abraham. Who is it that maybe God wants us to love and to care for and pray for in our own lives? And then here's how the story ends. Uh, chapter 30, or verse 30, it says this. Lot departed from Zoar and lived in the mountains along with his two daughters. Because he was afraid to leave and live in Zoar, instead he and his two daughters lived in a cave. So we don't, we're not told why, but eventually uh, he does leave that, the, the town that he went to to go live in this mountainous area, uh, perhaps knowing that Zoar is also wicked and maybe he's afraid that it's going to be destroyed as well, but he goes and he lives in the mountains. And then there's the story, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to read it, I'll just kind of explain it to you. Uh, Lot and his two daughters end up in a cave by themselves. And again, they're probably thinking the entire world has been destroyed, right? I mean, imagine you're living in a time, even here, without internet and TV and technology and all these sort of things. And there was like a, a massive, a massive storm. Um, everyone else dies around you. Everywhere you can see is just destruction and smoke and just death. They probably think they're the last one's alive. At least there's a good chance. And so they're in these mountains. Eventually, uh, his two daughters realize or they come to the conclusion that it, we're going to die here, that we're going to be by ourselves. And so they come up with a plan to get their dad, Lot, drunk. Uh, they both sleep with their father on different nights and they both become pregnant. Of course, the reasoning for do this is not because there's any sexual attraction or anything like that. They do this because they don't have any kids, and they think this is going to be the end of the road for them. And in the ancient world, kids are everything, uh, particularly if you're a married woman, 
right? You, you have kids, you lead the family, and then, of course, you perpetuate the family name. Your kids are your insurance. They are your legal status. Um, they are everything. And so they sleep with their father. They think the last was alive. They have kids. And then it says this, verse 36. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The firstborn gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today. The younger also gave birth to a son and named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites today. And what you see happening here, especially the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the original audience was the Israelites coming into the promised land. This would show them around some of the, again, some of the tribes that are in and around the promised land. And the point here as well is that the Moabites and the Ammonites only re- received the chance to exist because the Lord remembered Abraham, right? Otherwise, Lot and his family would die as well. Now, it's not condoning how they got here. It's just saying that they only existed because God even saved his, Lot's family in the, purpose, the first place. These people living in and around the promised land at the time the Israelites are traveling there are relevant to the audience, again, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so it's showing us them. They're only here because of God's grace. And so again, I think for us today, the question we had this morning was this, what does God's judgment teach us about God? We've said in the past in Genesis that God's judgment, one of the things it teaches us is that he cares. He cares. That's why he judges. Another thing this story points us to is this, that God is just in his judgment and scandalous in his grace. God is just in his judgment. That's not the scandalous part. The scandalous part is his grace. Now, scandalous means that which is legally or morally outrageous or undeserved, or we might say crazy. That judgment in this story is not scandalous. There is nothing scandalous about destroying a city that repeatedly, time after time, sexually violates strangers, uh, um, sacrifices their own kids on altars to false God, that does wicked and evil and terrible things. There is nothing wrong about judging that. I don't think anyone would agree or disagree that you should not stop something like that that is happening. What is scandalous is God's grace. What is scandalous is though Lot is undeserving, he is rescued not once, but twice by God's grace. What's scandalous is while how they came to be certainly is not to be celebrated, the existence of the Ammonites and the Moabites is God's Grace, that's the only reason they exist. Uh, God choosing Abraham and blessing Abraham and all and through the world, the rest of the world through him somehow someday is because of grace, right? Jesus, who is like Abraham, but is the true and better Abraham, blesses those around him. That you and I are invited into the kingdom of God, not because of us, but because of our proximity to Jesus. In other words, grace, right? The gospel is, the, is a scandal, is, the, is a scandal because of Grace, that you and I in the midst of our sin and our brokenness and our going the own, our own way and our own poor decision, our decisions are invited into the kingdom of God, not because we tried really hard or did the right thing or never said a bad word in our life, but because Jesus, who is the son of man, came on the earth, lived a perfect life we could not live, died the death that we deserve, so that anyone, no matter who you are, what you look like, what you've done, what has been done to you, can receive the mercy of God. This is grace. 
God is just in his judgment and scandalous in his grace. This reminds me as I close, I know many of you are probably familiar with the story uh, of the prodigal son. And I just want to say this, what I'm about to say is not heretical, okay? Uh, the, the, the headers in your Bible uh, are not actually in there. We're not originally in there. And so, for example, in Luke 15, it says, there's a header that says the prodigal son. That wasn't in there, okay? The reason I say that is I don't think that that's the best way to describe the story. The story of the prodigal son is about a son who, is, who has a wealthy dad who basically says, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. His dad grants it to them. He goes and he squanders everything. He's living in poverty. He eventually comes to his senses and says, I'm going to go back home. I don't deserve to be my father's son anymore. I'm just going to ask to be one of his servants. And what happens in the end of the story is that the, son, the father refuses, absolutely refuses to accept his son as a servant. Instead, he throws a massive party. He celebrates. He runs to his son. He hugs his son. See, the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son is not the best title. Well, the title should actually be the story of the prodigal father. Prodigal means reckless. It means careless. It means uh, wasteful. That's what we think. And this father, especially in the ancient world, this father's love was prodigal-like. That he gave everything to his son. His son blew it, and he still was excited to welcome him home. That he is scandalous in his grace and his love for his son. Listen, we worship a God who is scandalous, not in his judgment, but in his grace towards you. That you and I can receive the redemption and mercy of the love of God, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us.